Welcome into the Cine Siblings podcast, Deep Dive, a podcast where two brothers and sometimes a guest pick a great movie that they love and go deep into the themes and everything in between of the film. I'm Ian. I'm James. And Jamie, we have a guest today. You introduce him. All right. So uh, a fellow English teacher, but also a Marine Corps veteran. Um, comes to us today, hailing from all over the country, but uh, most recently Mandeville, Louisiana, and sitting to my side here is Joshua Jones. Hello, gentlemen. How's it going, bud? I haven't spoken to you in a little while. It's been a while, yes. Um, life is crazy, the world is upside down, and I'm just enjoying a good brew and ready to talk some film. Awesome. Jamie, what movie are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Saving Private Ryan, which Woo! hit Ian's number one uh, World War II movie draft. Uh, it, it is an excellent, excellent film. Uh, but one thing that we do want to note is that because it is rated R, this podcast will be using rated R language. We do try to keep it family friendly, but when the movie's not, we're not. Hell yeah. Uh, right. So this movie is, was my number one on the World War II draft, but it's also like in my top four, top five movies. You know, they, they tend to fluctuate depending on my mood, but Saving Private Ryan came out in 1998. I was way too young to watch this film, but I watched it anyway. You were uh, nine years old. <laughs> yes, sir. It's of course directed by Steven Spielberg. Starring Tom Hanks, Tom Sizemore, Edward Burns, Barry Pepper, Giovanni Ribisi, Adam Goldberg, Vin Diesel, Jeremy Davies, and the ever-lovable Matt Damon as Private Ryan. Uh, Lots of cameos, too, though. Yeah, there are a lot of cameos, uh, as war, big, giant, epic war films tend to do. Uh, just a quick synopsis, following the Normandy landings, a group of U.S. soldiers go behind enemy lines to retrieve a paratrooper whose brothers have been killed in action. How many brothers? All of them. All three. There's four Ryan brothers, correct? Yeah. Uh, it's so got a 91 on Metacritic. It's got an 8.6 on IMDb. Rotten Tomatoes critic score is 93% with the audience score of 95%. And just seems to me universally beloved film. Yep, I can't argue with that. Um, I, I don't actually remember the first time I saw this film, um, but I think as with most people that the opening scene is memorable uh, to mm -hmm. say the least. I think it's, it's one of those things that um, won't, it doesn't ever need to be redone uh, because no, it's, for sure not. it's, it's just brilliant. Um, horrifically brilliant. 
Yeah, for sure. So, uh, Josh, any any opening thoughts on the film? Ah, uh, yes. Jamie just brought up a uh, a great point. Not remembering the first time he saw it, I actually remember exactly every moment of the first time I saw it. I was in the Marine Corps. I was about two years in, and I was actually a newlywed as well. We went to a date, um, and this was the movie we saw after dinner, and everything was fine until the uh, the soldiers got off the boats, and then the uh, bullets started coming down range, and she spilled half of her drink on my lap. She dumped <laughs> half of the almonds on the floor, and the date really went badly after that. And then, um, you know, being a young Marine, um, I, I don't think I handled it very well. Wow, that's an incredible first uh, <laughs> first time watching this movie. I can remember, I didn't actually, I don't think, I might've seen this in theater, but I don't think I actually saw it in the theater. I thought, I think I saw it when it came out on DVD with a friend of mine who had, who had seen it multiple times in the theater. And uh, man, he had like surround sound and it was just bullets flying around your head. This opening scene, I can, and we watched it on blast. Like I tend to watch movies on blast all the time in my own house, but yeah, well, uh, y'all ready to get into the film? Let's do it. Absolutely. All right. Well, Saving Private Ryan, it opens uh, with an American flag. It's kind of distorted by the sun, and we get uh, an old man and his family walking through the grave sites at Normandy. Uh, of course, this sort of feels out of place at first, but I think Spielberg puts it in here as a sort of War doesn't end when you when the war ends. It doesn't end when you come home. It it sticks with you forever, and uh, you get endless crosses. Some a few stars of David uh, plots throughout, just as reminders of all of all those who, who were lost in the battle. And we cut to June 6, nineteen forty four. I want to make a point here about the cut. You have all these crosses. And they're they're white, they're stark, it's well lit. And the cut to D-Day, to June 6, 1944, it cuts to those dragon's teeth, those uh and it's hedgehogs. In, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it's in the silhouetted um black. And they're like these twisted, distorted crosses. It's like they're the same sort of thing in that they are grave markers in in so many ways but in a kind of an opposite less peaceful sort of way there there's something there and I, and I think that the the cinematography the juxtaposition between those two the white and, and the black is just very very well done yeah for sure yeah another part of that transition um you have the idea that this old man this old soldier is walking through the cemetery and you can see his family behind him. It's a beautiful day, it's sunny. It seems like it's calm, but you can sense the inner turmoil, the, you know, the, the war within him. And then you flash into the Higgins boats, you know, coming to the beach and you can see everybody. You can see Tom Hanks' hand shaking. You can see people doing that last moment preparations, throwing up over the side of the boats. So mm -hmm. once again, it's not quite there yet it's still kind of calm but yet you can tent, you can see the tense that's, that's coming along the lines of it's about to hit 
shit's about to hit the fan. Yeah. So June 6, 1944, Dog Green Sector, Omaha Beach is what we get on screen. And like you said, Captain Miller, Tom Hanks's character, shaking as he drinks from his canteen. Ben, they're puking. He barks some orders. And uh, this scene is, at least from what I can tell and what I've heard from uh, veterans, veterans in the war, uh, this is the closest thing to the real thing. And man, when that that gate opens on the Higgins boats and the bullets start flying, it's intense. It you immediately your stomach drops. I, that's like the only way I can describe it is you see in all these boys, these young men, boys get mowed down by these German uh, German MG forty twos, and the scene is just so mesmerizing. And as far as uh war films go i don't think it has uh, any rival here no and and it, i mean even with our the draft we did of world war ii films uh, if we were drafting best scenes this one absolutely wins uh hands down the other thing about this is you know we've talked about horror movies before and one of the reasons i have a difficulty with, with some horror movies is i like to try to put my myself in the, the protagonist's shoes. And this is, this beats out horror movies mm -hmm. for the kind of fear that it instills if you try to empathize uh, with, with these men who are storming these speeches. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, utterly terrifying. Yeah. And Captain Miller, obviously he's, seems to be our main character. He makes it ashore. We hear the sound cut out. It's sort of muffled. So this is kind of a, a tell that something, maybe his hearing's off. It, I'm not sure. Uh, a flamethrower explodes and he's covered in, he's covered in blood. As he just watches the carnage unfold around him and he snaps out of it and they kind of make their, the soldiers kind of begin to move up their seawall with uh, the orders from Captain Miller and he's trying to save men and they get blown in half and finally they make it up to the seawall and uh we're introduced to some of our band of brothers you know our our group mellish some of his guys mellish ribbon caparzo and the medic who's trying to save some wounded before they're killed That's while he's working on them wade yeah um and we're introduced to our resident sniper jackson uh, Barry Pepper, as he, uh, you got any insights for us, Josh? Well, the biggest thing I want to talk about for this scene, it, I was talking to Jamie earlier, and unlike any other war movie that I've ever seen, this one's kind of backwards, where it just throws you in the midst of probably one of the biggest battles our country's ever faced, and it starts right in the middle of the action, or right before the action. So you go from this old man in the cemetery into total hell right away people yeah. are losing limbs people are getting shot people are dying large numbers at a time we have no exposition you have 30 minutes of film of intense adrenaline driven film that really shakes you emotionally physically and then of course as they take that hill we start to meet our characters as you mentioned you get that 30 something minutes into the film there's no other war movie that does that to express that much carnage before you even get to know 
anyone's name. Right. And, and that time period where they're storming the beach as well, the camera angles, um, I would love to talk about that for a minute because I've never seen another film have so many different aspects to the same viewpoint of a battle. You, you get, of course, the, the hidden cameramen. Most of these people in World War II did not survive. Um, a lot of the footage we have is very limited and is on the outskirts of the actual battle because most of these people that got off the boats died instantly or quickly. Right. So um, you get the invisible cameraman and then you get a, like a first, first shooter doom type video game with Tom Hanks character. You're actually seeing what he sees and then it reverses itself from the Germans onto what the, you know, what the Americans are doing from the Germans viewpoint. And there's so, one, there's one shot that I really want to mention and it's, it's from the boat looking up at that German bunker mm -hmm. and it looks like this giant horrible face like this yes. awful giant sentinel and it's just it looks completely insurmountable um and it's it's a very it's terrifying and it's it's just that one that's it's a very short shot but it stuck out to me uh what on, about rewatching what about the shot where we get from the germans point of view of just from that mv mg42 nest and they're just mowing down people trying to come out of that higgins boat the only thing that's standing in your way is not enough ammo yeah mm -hmm. and yeah because i i believe the mg mg42 runs out of ammo so that's why the only reason they stopped shooting at that boat all right so they're trying to clear this machine gun nest and they've seen what lies around the corner he gets a little sweet bubble gum on the bayonet and a mirror kind of peeking around which i thought was always sweet they're just yeah, they do whatever good. They do whatever is necessary to get the job direction. done here. Uh, Captain Miller sends out his sniper uh, as bait, but not before standing as bait for his soldier. You know that I always thought that was a good, like a good scene that he's willing to risk his life uh, to give his men cover, a sorts of as a sort of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sergeant Horvath, who is played by Tom Sizemore, said, "Captain." Your mother would be very upset if she saw you do that. <laughs> I thought you were my mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. All right. So we cut away to two chaplains uh, who are praying over the dying on the beach. And I thought this was poignant with because we then we cut back to Jackson praying for help as he shoots other men with his sniper rifle, which we will continue to see him do in the film. And I figured this was purposeful to cut between these two prayers. The Germans do begin to surrender here. And I mean, we're cruising through this opening sequence and probably not doing it justice at all. I mean, we talked about how incredible it is. And you can't, uh, you can't do this justice without watching it. All right. Steven Spielberg says that he didn't storyboard any of it. He just, they just went to film and they just started doing stuff and Sounds like, I mean, you're just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. I, I'm curious to see if they film things that didn't make it into the movie. I actually um, looked at the original script and it's, it does, um, the original script has the Rangers scaling a cliff. Like it's like longest day. Yeah. It's, it's more of that scene rather than one of the like beach landings like that. Yeah. So, um, but everybody got brought to, Omaha was a particularly bad one because that one was not really the beach they were supposed to land on uh, precisely. 
Yeah. So they had a lot of that stuff going on. Yep. So Germans begin surrendering as they know that they've lost and the Americans begin to take the uh, area. Uh, two Nazi soldiers in particular, I want to talk about, start, you know, surrendering, holding their hands up and they're speaking to the American soldiers as they kill them and sort of mock them. And look, I washed for supper. Uh, these two German soldiers who they They're killed not. were actually speaking Czech and they were saying, please don't shoot me. I am not German. I am Czech. I didn't kill anyone. I am Czech. And that, yeah. uh, that's what a rough translation. And uh, apparently members of what the Germans call the OST East battalions, men, mostly Czech and Polish taken prisoner in the Eastern European countries invaded by Germany and forced into the German army. Sort of right. like cons conscriptions or whatever. Yeah, they they were conscripts, um, and so they're not really even German soldiers pressed into the German army. Um, yeah, and that's you know that that this whole scene, and and it's not translated what they say. You really no, don't not. know, um, and it's like this is one of those things that you only really catch on reviewing and um, people analyzing the film. Um, and you don't even feel like you don't feel particularly good about when they shoot them and you go, well, they were German, whatever. And then when you learn more later, it's like, oh, oh man, those, those dudes were right. They were not like trying to, they, they were, they didn't have a choice. And that's really troublesome to, to think about. And that's one of the things that this movie, I think, starts to touch on to some degree, although it doesn't make it the central point. It's about the idea of what war does to people in mm -hmm. in the psyche and how it changes you and how it makes you um worse and not like you would be otherwise and i mean you can say that about any experience but war has a much more profound effect on people yeah and oh. right so caparzo who has been diesel's character he finds a hitler youth knife uh mm -hmm. here uh mellish is sort of torn up about it saying and now it's a shabbat chala cutter right hala hala so right so no it's just shabbat yeah it's a braided bread used for their holidays right uh well mainly i think even just a shabbat meal yeah all right. So the whole the whole Omaha Beach battle was filmed in a sequence over a four week period, uh, moving the action up the beach, shot by shot, day by day. And like I said, Steven Spielberg claims none of it was storyboarded in advance. He actually held and operated the camera for a lot of the shots in this. Mm -hmm. The scene uh, cost eleven million dollars and involved up to a thousand extras. Uh, some of them, which were our Irish Army Reserve, and uh, 20 to 30 of them, of the extras, were amputees issued prosthetic limbs to play soldiers who had limbs blown off. Talk about an under, you know, an underserved community getting well, some getting some time to shine here. I was also thinking about the Irish uh, Army Reserve. Uh, I think we just did a movie in Braveheart where they had a lot of them uh, playing uh, both both English and Scottish soldiers. So yeah, that's sweet. Yeah. The, the other, the other thing I thought of was, you know, $11 million. So with the price of ammo, um, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> that's probably it would probably be quite a bit more nowadays yeah you're talking 11 million in 1998 so yeah, yeah. it's definitely gonna be more all right and then we get the kind of just the desecrated beaches bloody water uh camera floats over to a dead body with the name ryan s printed on its pack and uh we cut to the home front all the women typing out each death narrated narrated by men sending their condolences to mothers of dead soldiers this is kind of the the washing clean of the horrors of war for those back home you know you don't want to tell you're not going to tell all these mothers that they didn't even make it off the boat most of them that they died a hero and uh and we get a woman who realizes something and uh, she's kind of running around and she finds three telegrams and she realizes that the mom is going to receive three telegrams that her three of her four sons have died. And we get uh, Ger- General George C. Marshall, United States Army Chief of Staff. Uh, we get a Brian Cranston cameo here as the a one-armed uh, um, g- general, I assume. Mm-hmm. Brian Cranston kind of pleads the case of the Ryan brothers and explains what, hap- what has happened and why they were split up after the Sullivan brothers died on the Juno. Anybody know the history of the, the Juno, the, uh, the battleship? I'm pretty sure the yeah. Juno was a battleship that uh, all the Sullivan brothers were on when it sank. And the mother had to get all of the telegrams for her sons. Right. They all died all at once. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the whole story is actually based on something that happened after that. Um, and there were multiple brothers who were killed in, in different um, actions. I, I believe it was actually in the Pacific theater, or at least one of the brothers was. Um, and they brought the, the last brother home but then they found out later that the brother who was assumed KIA or killed in action was really MIA and they, they actually found and rescued him and they were able to bring him home. So he was, he did get to survive. So that's um, kind of what it's based on to some, to some extent, but not, um, uh, it's kind of like a more of a a spiritual and you know an inspiration for the story right and uh we get dale die who is our hollywood military expert who basically shows up or has his hand in almost everything military wise basically says that there's no way we can know where the hell the fourth ryan brother is because their or divisions were scattered to hell and they were and if you've seen band of brothers we get a more in-depth look at, the, at that um, and then general marshall reads a letter to mrs bixby in boston i have a letter here written a long time ago to a mrs bixby in boston so bear with me dear madam i've been shown in the files of the war department a statement the adjutant general of Massachusetts, that you are the mother of five 
sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine that would attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. <clears throat> I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost. The solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. send somebody to find him. And we are going to get him to hell out of there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The Bixby letter, which was featured here, was actually inaccurate. The War Department incorrectly informed Abraham Lincoln about the fate of Mrs. Bixby's sons. Two had died in battle, and the others eventually survived the war. And it's not clear whether Mrs. Bixby's story about her sons was... Uh, born from error or exaggeration and why the war department had failed to correct the report based on their own records. I thought that was interesting that they still they included it, but it is interesting. I'm he explains his mission to his sergeant and it's like, you took away your company. He said, it wasn't my company. It was the army's. Well, that's yeah. what they told me anyways. And here we meet Upham. He's a French and German. It's played by Jeremy Davies. Uh, he's very kind of squarely kind of guy. Uh, he's a French and German translator. I think he's a typist. Uh, he's a, normally a non-combatant. He makes maps and he translates. He says uh, in the film, he's obviously cum- clumsy and skittish. And we got this guy in Fury too. Not not the actor, but like the, we got the typist who gets thrust into this military action that he's really not prepared for. Yeah, Logan Lerman plays a, I think a that in Fury, I think he plays a better sort of part there because it's his story. Yeah, in true. the in Fury, true. I mean it is it, he. I mean I'm not going to spoil the movie, but it's his story, and uh, this is I mean this. is, Upham is a main character, don't get me wrong, but this is not his story. Yeah, and Corporal Upham actually is a very important type of stereotype, especially for in the military. Every unit, every unit has a Corporal Upham. Someone that uh, didn't quite understand what he was getting himself into. Yeah. And he's there to represent all of those qualities of the everyday guy who doesn't need to be there. Um, but once he finds himself there, he doesn't quite know what to do. And so he is a, a bumbling idiot or a fool at times and uh, goes along with the group. And as we go through this discussion, we'll discuss that more, but he becomes extremely important to express those ideas as the movie plays out. Yeah. And he's yeah. also, when, when you write a narrative um, and you're, you're trying to involve your audience or your reader into a world in which they're not familiar, you need 
or, or not necessarily, but one of the ways to exp explicate this world, to give a proper exposition is to have a character who's a bumpkin, mm -hmm. um, who doesn't understand the world and who needs it explained to them. Um, the you know, viewer. This is, right, because mm -hmm. that character is you. They are, you're not from the world. Um, it's like how the hobbits play in, in Lord of the Rings. It's like, they don't know stuff. And, you know, they need to be, they need to have this world explained to them. So Corporal Upham in here is, is that character for us so that, and he's got some of these novel ideas or, or these, these cliched ideas about, about uh, the, the military, you know, and following orders. And, you know, they, they're kind of like, you're an idiot. You don't know. You haven't fought like right. we fought. We get some nice shots of the beach, but then this cut to them moving on. And this is a shot of the film with the silhouetted squad coming up the hill uh, in sort of a V formation. And we get up them trying to make friends with his new squad. And they're more than a, a bit abrasive here. Yeah. And uh, this is one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. Yeah, I mean, it's so good. But this is where you really get to know some of your characters. Mm -hmm. we're, all, we're introduced to them, and in, in like Josh said, we're introduced to them in the chaos of storming a beachhead, and we don't really know them yet. But now we're starting to get to know them here. And uh, I think it's Ryben who says, what's the sense of, in risking the lives of the eight of us to save one guy? Yeah. And uh, this, this is the crux of the movie, right? And uh, we get the it, it nice, is. what's, what's foobar? And then, oh, it's German. <laughs> well, I never, I've never heard of that. Yeah. This this will whole... be a thing that kind of, kind of runs through. It's a running gag throughout the film. Which right. Steven Spielberg is, is the master mm -hmm. of a running gag. It's just like, just enough. It's they just... never tell you what it is either. Yes, he does. Does he? At the very end. Yeah. Oh, okay. At, before the last battle. But you, uh, but you get the idea of what it is anyway. You don't really need it explained to you. Right. Um, yeah, uh, this, this whole thing, this whole scene where they're really discussing the whole preposterous nature of the mission. Um, and, it's, and it's nice that it's addressed by those carrying it out, not people looking in on the outside or anything. Um, like if you've forgotten this scene, you might remember the film and think, oh yeah, the whole premise of this thing is ridiculous. But it's like, it's the central point mm -hmm. of the film that the whole thing is ridiculous and it really brings up the this is really introducing the central theme of how much is one life worth and so i mean this this scene's got this it's got a lot of good dialogue um, um my my favorite one is when they're 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 griping about the mission it's the captain what about you i mean you don't gripe at all i don't gripe to you Riven. i'm a captain it's a chain of command. Gripes go up, not down. Always up. You gripe to me. I gripe to my superior officer. So on, so on, so on. I don't gripe to you. I don't gripe in front of you. You should know that as a ranger. I'm sorry, sir, but uh, let's say you weren't a captain, or maybe I was a major. What would you say then? Well, in that case, I say this is an excellent mission, sir, with an extremely valuable objective, sir. Worthy of my best efforts, sir. Moreover, I feel heartfelt sorrow for the mother of Private James Ryan. I'm willing to lay down my life and the lives of my men, especially you, Ryden, to ease her suffering. He's good. I love him. 
<laughs> I love him. I, I, He's yeah. the best. And and yeah, that's that's what Caparzo and and Mellish, you know, in the in the background cutting up. This shows just that that they respect they do respect their their superior officer here, right? And they do they do generally they do love him in yeah. a lot of ways that they 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 believe in his leadership. And that's I mean I've used this in my professional life when I've been like the the department lead, um, and and it's like. I find it useful and you can, you know, you do gripe up. Griping down does nothing but depress people and, and make people think that you're ineffectual. Um, people with less power than you can't help fix your problems, um, not usually anyway, and griping up and then supporting the decisions that are ultimately made above you. Um, you have to support those decisions to your inferiors and you know, that's usually the best course of action uh, in order to make things work the way they're supposed to. Superiors, if you gripe down, you're undermining your own leadership. And so this, this is really good here for, to, to see um, that Captain Miller has a real sense of leadership. We've seen that he is a good leader, but we get some of his leadership philosophy and we can kind of start seeing that he, he's not just going on instinct here. He's going on principles. Yeah. All right. And so moving on, the rain begins to fall and is drowned out by gunfire in the distance. I love this transition of the sound effects of the, the rain drops and the gunfire. I'm not going to uh, say it reminds me of Bambi, but it reminds me of Bambi. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got a, a Bambi reference in a Saving Private Ryan podcast rewatch it rewatch it and tell me i'm wrong okay. tell me spielberg was not inspired in some way by that okay all right so they come into the town and shout thunder uh someone else responds with flash and there's some airborne soldiers paul giamatti is it. our cameo here there's so many cameos in this film okay real quick <laughs> they did correct this in band of brothers but throughout the movie characters are screaming thunder which to identify families and waiting for a response for flash. But in actuality, the challenge word was flash and thunder, the response word as thunder was chosen as the password because of its TH sound is there no such sound in German. Right. Uh, so like I said, he did fix this in band of brothers. Yeah. I'm not sure why, how, I'm not sure how they got that off or if there was, I mean, if some people would use it separately and because soldiers not knowing the, the reason that it was chosen. But one of the things I like here with Paul Giamatti is there's just a slight level of comic relief. And it's, yeah. it's subtle, but it's desperately needed. And it's realistic, um, you know, and we had the walk and talk with, with uh, you know, and there's, there's humor there, but we've, after that first 30 minutes of super intense uh, battle, we needed comic relief. And I think that's one thing that makes this movie so attainable is that it doesn't beat you over the head with the darkness of war because soldiers needed that comic relief themselves. They were experiencing this hell. Yeah. So. And uh, we get the friendly neighborhood morale officer over the intercom. And he says, the Statue of Liberty is kaput. And I love it. Tom Hanks goes, the Statue of Liberty is kaput. That's disconcerting. 
Yeah. Uh, these action scenes have very minimal to no score behind them, which I thought was interesting. We find out there's a pool going on on figuring out where the captain is from and where he, what he did before the war. And uh, it's just because none of them, none of his soldiers knew. And they come across a French family as they make their way through town up from translates and the family wants them to take the kids to safety and against the captain's orders, Caparzo, Vin Diesel's character takes the little girl and he says, captain, the decent thing to do would be to take her to the next town, which the captain replies, we aren't here to do the decent thing. We're here to follow fucking orders. And Caparzo is shot out of nowhere. We get a harsh dissonant piano chord, which is actually organic to the, to the shot because it's caused by Caparzo mm-hmm. falling onto a piano in the street, which I thought was, that's the only score we get. Yeah. And here we get the iconic sniper versus sniper. As Jackson picks out where he thinks the sniper is and gets ready to take him out. Mm. Right. Caparzo's still alive, bleeding in the rain, and Mellish pleads with him to keep his head down. Wade, the medic, yells at him to stay still. Caparzo pulls out a letter, and he says, it's, got, it's to my dad. It's got blood on it, fish. And Jackson says his prayer. And as the just as the German sniper sees Jackson, he fires around and the bullet goes through the scope through the German soldier's eyes. Yeah. This is this is sick. This is a this I think Mythbusters did a, a thing on that one, but the, the the thing that really sticks out to me in this is the quote that we aren't here to do the decent thing. Um and really it's kind of the the stance that most of the squad has is they they don't really see the merit in their mission to save private ryan like this there's people dying all over what makes private ryan so special um and that's it it just kind of punctuates more of this theme of Mm -hmm. what what's what is one life really worth really look at everything around you look at this family um, they just want this, this father and this mother want to save their children. Um, and like the decent thing would be to save these two children. Um, you know, and he's like, you know, Caparzo saying she reminds me of my niece. Like I, I can't just let her go. And what happens when he tries to do the decent thing to get shots and, and killed. It is. It's too late. Caparzo is dead, and our squad is down to seven. And uh, the other thing here, no, well, Captain takes the chill, takes the girl, and he mm-hmm. brings her back up and says, "That's why we can't take children." Right. But Caparzo talking about the letter to his dad, you know, as his basically his dying letter. It it really kind of puts in perspective. Why is Caparzo? And and they talk about this later, you know, it's like, ain't no Ryan worth a sing, uh, one Caparzo, ain't worth 10 Caparzo, or, you know, 10 Ryans aren't worth one Caparzo or whatever the, the line is. But it's like Caparzo's dad is going to get this letter with the notice of his death. It's, it just punctuates this whole thing of there's so many people who are losing children and they're on this mission to save one guy just one guy so just a quick note about killing a sniper 
by firing a shot through the other sniper's scope into his eye. It was actually based on a true incident, though not in World War II. It was accomplished by a U.S. Marine, Gunnery Sergeant Carlos Hathcock, during the Vietnam War. Uh, Hathcock was a sniper who was being fired at by a concealed North Vietnamese Army sniper. He finally managed to catch a glimpse of the man's sniper scope and put a round through it, killing him. The incident pictured in this film is a tribute to Hathcock, who has been regarded as one of the U.S. military's top snipers. Moving on with the movie, you know, Wade takes the letter from Caparzo's lifeless hands and covers the body in a blanket as they walk away. Ryman says, fuck Ryan. And they finally find Captain Hamill, played by Ted Danson, but not before accidentally knocking down a brick wall into a room full of Germans. I love this scene. They're just sort of like the standoff, just telling each other to, uh, you know, put the, put the guns down, just drop them, drop them, drop them, put them down. They're all terrified. They're yelling at each other. And then Captain Hamill's group shoots all the Germans and uh, from a, from the high ground. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, none other than Ted Danson. A, another beautiful cameo. Right, and we're about to get another one as he says, yeah, we got a private James Ryan, and then up comes a young Nathan Fillion. Although, I don't know if that counts as a cameo because but this if is you like, watch it now, you'll go, oh, this is a cameo. It, it, it's yeah. one of those like ensemble casts where like Sean Connery's in uh, The Longest Day, and it's like he wasn't a big name back then. Like, it's that kind of thing. Right, and it's the wrong James Ryan. This is uh, James Frederick Ryan, Minnesota, not James Francis Ryan from Iowa. <sighs> Man. So they follow several leads to find out where Ryan could be. No one really knows where he could be. Obviously, they airborne dropped all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one of the things, though, about this is this is the first, outs- first man on the ground in uh, Ted Danson's character is he is he a colonel in this or a major? He's a captain. Oh, he's, he's another captain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's like I understand what you're doing. Good luck. Mm-hmm. And, and you know Miller goes I'm like what? He goes yeah. no, I mean it. Find him, get him home. Like and you're just like okay, somebody agrees with this mission. It's 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 nice to see that somebody who is on the ground who is experiencing experiencing this agrees with the mission thinks that it's a noble cause it is a noble cause in a lot of ways but it does but that's called into lives. question in the whole film yes uh and he not he believes in this cause but he's not crazy about monty the british general uh, <laughs> patent reference or just the uh general american officer sentiment that nobody really liked monty so they find, well, the uh, the captain gives them a church and they're resting in the church. And here we get a lot of kind of stories from the characters and where someone else notices Miller's hand that's shaking and he questions yeah. them about it. They reminisce about a Vecchio. Is this, is it, this is a Sergeant Corbett. P of V. Yeah. P of V on uh, everyone's jacket for victory for mm-hmm. Vecchio. Oh, right, right. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. No, this one, like, you get a lot of dialogue in this and you learn a lot about your characters. And I really like that 
Spielberg took the time to just let the characters talk to each other and not try to add anything frou-frou or fancy or try to do it in the middle of an action scene. He just let the characters talk in this very private, intimate sort of thing. And I really, really like that. Um, and we learn like Captain Miller has lost like 93 men under his command. And he says this, Ryan, you know, better be worth it. Cure some disease, invent the longer lasting light bulb. And this really brings up the question of what might, at least in Captain Miller's view, make a life more valuable than another. 94, by the way, you said 93, it's 94. I, I'm, I'm an English teacher, not, not, numbers are not always my thing. <laughs> uh, but this is something I thought was kind of a, a thing, whatever, but Wade transposing Caparzo's letter from the bloody letter to a clean, neat letter. Uh, again, this, I feel like this represents washing away the filth and horrors of war. And this and, is one uh, of those places where the, the mystery of Captain Miller's hometown and his occupations like revisited. And it's, it's really important because we don't know we don't know about him he's a bit of a mystery he's not particularly special and like he was just talking about um you know the, that ryan better cure some disease or invent a longer lasting light bulb like we don't get the the impression that by captain millard's own thinking that his life is worth any more than anyone else's his identity as in who is he outside of the army you know, what does he do? What is his occupation? Where is he from? This is an idea, of course, you know, every man in the military is thinking, um, they want to know who their leader is. You know, what's so special about you? Why should I follow you? Um, or show me something, you know, show me, tell me who you are. Why should I think so highly of you and follow you into the depths of hell? And he's a mystery. So we don't learn about him until much later in the film about who he actually is, what he actually does for a job which makes him extremely special. Because in the midst of all of this, the idea of um, humanity, all of these men are coming from different places um, throughout the country and they're all thrown in together into a place most of them don't wanna be and a mission that most of them don't wanna do. And there's, they're basically trying to complete the impossible, right? And I was telling Jamie earlier, he mentioned a, uh, a Hobbit reference earlier but once they storm that hill off of Normandy and they begin their journey and they know what their mission is, to me, it's always seemed kind of like a Lord of the Rings film. This, this band of group of misfits that are kind of thrown together for one objective that seems kind of ridiculous, but it's worthwhile because of course it's gonna help many. Uh, but in this case, of course, it's only gonna help a few, right? The idea of like saving one person, of course, all these people dying around you, they're saving one person. So it is a ridiculous idea and they're thrown in the midst of this. So they just go off walking and they, they learn as they go who they are. So the exposition takes forever, which is where we are right now. They're really starting to learn each other at this point in the story. And uh, I've never seen a war film like this. Every other war film I know, the exposition starts from the beginning. You're introduced one person at a time. You get to learn who they are, where they come from, and then they're thrown into the midst. So this one here is in reverse. And that's what makes it so special to me. Yeah. And you speak of Lord of the Rings, but this next shot, the squad walking single file across a dark and cloudy sky, intermittently lighting up with artillery firing in the distance, very reminiscent of 
an adventure film with your with your fellowship. But I was going to say it's very re- reminiscent of the Fellowship of the Ring, but this is before Fellowship like, of the Ring it's five was years filmed. Before. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. No, it's, it's only like three years before. But I, I do want to go back and watch uh, the Ralph Bakshi animation film of Lord of the Rings because, mm-hmm. but anyway, mm-hmm. we're getting way off topic. Uh, <laughs> and they come to an airborne camp where they're questioning people about Ryan helping the wounded. This glider pilot uh, is wounded and he's kind of... No, he's not a scratch on and that was his thing. Oh, but he's hanging out with the wounded. Right, right, right. But uh, he he's kind of the guide. He's kind of their guide through this whole airborne misfit camp. And he tells a story about having to try to fly a glider with steel plates bolted to the bottom to keep a general safe from gunfire. It was like trying to fly a freight train. They were just too, we were just too damn heavy. 22 guys dead. And Captain Miller says, all that guy, all that for a general? Mm-hmm. One man. And then somebody, uh, I think it's Ryben pops in the window. It says, a lot of that going around. The Foobar. 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 Yeah, Y'all that is. That right. Hey, I looked up Foobar in the German dictionary. There's no Foobar here. Up, up. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like that. Like they go, because he's us. And they, it, it's like, Okay, uh, we're gonna get to finally know what Fubar is, and then and it's like up them, go go see if go, if, if one of them is right, and, and you're just like, oh, that's so good, um, yeah, like, and this is the whole, but but the story that the the pilot, the glider pilot tells, is like a vignette version of what their story could be, where you know. We, we have the engineers that put the steel plate on the hull of this very light glider and then makes it damn near impossible to fly. And it risks the lives of everybody on board, but in order to protect the life of this one person, this general. And the, the mission is so ill-conceived, the protections get, get everybody killed along with the person it was deemed, you know, designed to protect. It's it's like a um, story that kind of bodes ill for their whole mission. And really it's in some ways it's kind of, it's kind of foreshadowing here, but it's also like, it's giving the character something that they know, they know this is potentially their own fate, that they are doing something that is so ill-conceived. Yeah. Fubar. It's so ill-conceived that, it'll get them all killed so yeah our glider pilot gives them a bag of dog tags and Mm. they start searching through them in sort of an awful and desensitized way uh spitting on them to clean them and just laughing and carrying goofing off carrying on and wade the medic stops them as he realizes all the airborne is watching them and uh, miller goes maybe we should just go Shouting like Hansel and Gretel through the woods. I want to uh, stop you here, though, before, okay. you, before you hit the next part, because this dog tag scene is like the most powerful to me. Um, the other, other than, of course, the opening scene, which I think is the most powerful to everybody. But, the, you know, we have the squad dealing out dog tags like playing par- cards or poker chips, and they're not, 
they're not really thinking that each one is representative of a dead airborne soldier who's died within the last four or five days. So, I mean, even our leader, Captain Miller, is taking part. But it's the medic, Wade, he comes in, breaks it all up, because we see that the airborne, they're marching by, they're disgusted, they're troubled, their faces, they run, they, their faces run the gamut of emotions. And it really shows that Wade, he's the healer. He, and, you know, he's, he bears the Red Cross. He's sort of the moral center of the party. Um, and they accept his chastisement and comply. Even Captain Miller, his superior officer, realizes immediately that Wade is right. Um, and, you know, they, the, the whole casual nature in which the squad's like approaching the dog tags, looking for Ryan's name, it just kind of further highlights how little they believe in the mission. You know, each dog tag is a life lost it's absolutely ridiculous that all of these all of these lives mean a hill of beans but ryan's life means so much and looking at the airborne glares like they they kind of we kind of really get the idea though that these lives do mean something wade's admonition snapped them all out of it these lives mean something but even if it does even if these lives don't mean anything to them personally um, they do mean something to somebody. And I, I think Wade as the moral center of the, the party really kind of brings them back to, to reality. Absolutely. So moving on, uh, Captain Miller begins shouting through the airborne, like Hansel and Gretel through the woods uh, for <laughs> Ryan. And someone actually knows where he is. A man with a hearing loss because of, a grenade went right off next to my head. I love this guy. Uh, and this is this like, is more that comic relief that yes. we need. Yeah. And uh, they communicate through pen and paper. And we find out that Ryan is in Ramel to babysit a bridge. And uh, I think I think this on- character, this this hearing, this guy who's lost his hearing. I I have a feeling that it is somewhat inspired by, it's a slight homage to uh, the paratrooper that was played by Red Buttons in The Longest Day, who, who loses his hearing because he's like, his parachute hangs up near the church bells that ring all night. Oh my and gosh, so, I forgot about that. And I think, I feel like that this is kind of a, a, an homage to him. Is not, I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I just I, that I thought of that, and I just want to connect our two favorite World War II films in yeah, that way. I mean, if it echoes, if this echoes to you, then that, it is what it is. So on their journey, they find some dead airborne soldiers, and Captain Miller decides that they need to take out this MG42 nest, really against everybody else's gut feelings and advice, and. Somebody, I forget who it says, sir, I don't have a good feeling about this one. That's Ryben. And he says, when was the last time you felt good about anything? I thought that was uh, just kind of speaking to this whole war, really. Mm-hmm. <sighs> this whole action scene, we don't really get to see what happens. Uh, it's seen from Upland's perspective, who's left behind as he watches from cover behind a dead cow through Jackson's sniper scope. And uh, 
why they run the unarmed medic through this mission as i guess a decoy or something draw, draw fire i think yeah uh yeah it it gets wade our medic who's played by giovanni rapisi killed and like i said why is he there like why not run up him through there Everybody tries to dress this guy's wound and they give him a lot of morphine as he cries out for his mama with his dying breath. Truly one of the most heartbreaking death scenes in a war film for me as this, this man, this who was committed to saving lives, not taking them is killed. And we see him bleeding and you know, they're salting or what do they call it? The sulfate or whatever. Yeah. And the men in the squad are not happy, obviously. Well, and they like, want to kill the, PO, the, the uh, POW they've captured. And instead, uh, Miller makes the German and Upham dig the graves for the paratroopers and Wade. And as he, Captain Miller walks away, he breaks down into tears. Right. and Away and, from all his men in yeah. private. But if... if you accept my premise that I brought up in the last scene that Wade is the moral center of the party. Mm-hmm. Then, and he's being tended to by the whole squad. They, they, their hands are all bloody. They are all trying to save him, but they are losing their moral center, literally. And it just, it, his death marks this extremely dark turn for the party. And what happens immediately upon his death? They turn to vengeance. It's if you look at the captain as the daddy of the group, you know, your medic is your mom. She, he's a nurturer. He's the one that takes care of you. And when that person's lost, of course, in the Marine Corps, uh, we have that person, the corpsman, and we protect the corpsman at all costs because he protects us. And he's there for us for whatever issue that we have. And yeah, he's the moral center of the group, but he's also the nurturing center of the group. So at this point in time, as someone said it earlier, like, what's the last good idea you had or the last good feeling you've had? They're all gone now. You know, that, that, that feeling of um, support, that, that nurturing feeling that everything's going to be okay. Somebody's here to make sure that we understand that and make sure that we're all right. That person's gone. And that was a very heartbreaking scene, and I won't lie to you. I think I shed a tear or two that first time I saw it. Yeah, for sure. I get tear. I tear up on almost every movie I watch, but this one <laughs> for sure gets me every time. All right, so move moving on. They're digging the grave. The they get a you know the soldier, the German soldier, kind of pleading for his life. But I love America. Betty Grable, what what the cinch? <laughs> Betty Boop. <laughs> You know, so, uh, and eventually Captain Miller lets him go. He blindfolds him and tells him to walk however many paces. And uh, all hell breaks loose within the squad here. Ryman essentially is about to become a deserter. Sergeant Horvath kind of threatens him to shoot him. I mean, he does. He's got a gun on him. Everybody's yelling and carrying on. He says, I'm going to shoot you because I don't like you. And... Here it is. Captain Miller diffuses the whole thing by asking what the pool was up to on him. 300. You are a coward son of a bitch! I'm waiting, son. Zark! 
I'm What's waiting. the pool on me up to right now? What, what, what's it up to? Wait, what is it, uh, $300, is that it? $300? I'm a school teacher. I teach English composition. This little town called Adley, Pennsylvania. It's, uh, in the last 11 years, I've been at Thomas Alva Edison High School. I was a coach of the baseball team in the springtime. Back home, and I tell people what I do for a living, and they think, well, now that figures. But over here, it's uh, a big, a big mystery. So I guess I've changed some. Sometimes I wonder if I've changed so much, my wife is even going to recognize me whenever it is I get back to her. And how I'll ever be able to to tell her about days like today. Uh, Ryan, I don't know anything about Ryan. I don't care. Man means nothing to me. It's just a name. But if you know, if going to Ramel and finding him so he can go home, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well then then that's my mission. You want to leave? You want to go off and fight the war? All right. All right, I won't stop you. I'll even put in the paperwork. I just know that every man I kill, the farther away from home I feel. And Ryman begins to walk away, and he stops as he looks back to see his captain bury the dead soldiers. So, what do you guys think? He reveals what he did, well, who he was before all this. This, in turn, brings us to our unlikely hero, the guy that everyone looks up to, the so mysterious, why should we follow you? He's just a school teacher. An English teacher of 11 years, which I think you and I are yes. literally of 11 years. Yes. That's something magic. That is incredible right there. Yeah. Both of you guys, huh? Yeah, we actually started teaching at the same time, different places, but same mm -hmm. time. Wow. Well, I work at the DMV, so. Anyway, yeah, this, this is powerful kind of monologue of telling his soldiers who he is. The most powerful line is, you know, with every soldier I kill, the further away from home I feel. Yeah. And, yes. and that's one of those war is hell sorts of mm -hmm. uh, lines. And it's, it's one that doesn't actually get brought up in this film as the most quotable or the most memorable lines. I mean, there's so many good lines in this film, but that one right there is really poignant. Um, for a war movie in general. And in some ways, it's it's one of those war movie lines that's an anti-war movie line. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, all right, the squad is now moving through a fields of dandelions. Mel is just singing softly as the score begins to build and they hear a half-track coming. 
they take care they take cover and someone is shooting a bazooka rounds at the half track who's doing the shooting not them they don't know who's shooting at it they take out the german soldiers and the 101st airborne announces themselves and one by one they introduce themselves and we have matt damon as private ryan i think this is so perfect how they just stumble upon him here mm-hmm. um and now we're in Ramel. It really is just a ragtag group of paratroopers holding this bridge. And uh, Miller explains why they're there, that they are not their reinforcements, and uh, that they're here for Ryan. And Ryan doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to abandon his post. Ryman cuts in and tells him, hey, asshole, two of our guys died already trying to find you. And uh, he doesn't make any sense. Why do I get to go? Why not any of these guys? And Miller says, is that what they're supposed to tell your mother when they hand her another folded American flag? And I love this. He says, tell her that when you found me, that I was here with the only brothers I have left and that there was no way I was going to desert them. There's no way I'm leaving this bridge. Ryan doesn't even believe in the mission. No, he doesn't. That's that you get a sinking feeling in your stomach for the guys that have died trying to find this guy and he doesn't even want to fucking go. Yeah. And you have this group of guys that have seen hell for days and days now looking for this guy and they've lost some of their own. They're down on their luck. They finally find him. Their mission's over. They can bring him back and have a little peace, you know, and he doesn't want to leave and he's fresh and he's ready to fight and he wants to stay. And uh, I just thought that was hilarious. Once I found out that Spielberg had put the rest of the men through boot camp, except for Damon. Because yeah. <laughs> he was fresh when he got to the, state, to the set. And everybody else was like, you know, dude, really? Yeah. So this is, I think, my favorite scene, non-battle scene of the film. In, uh... I don't know. What do you think? You don't want to know what I think. No, Mike, I do. Well, part of me thinks the kid's right. What's he done to deserve this? He wants to stay here, fine. Let's leave him and go home. Yeah. But another part of me thinks, what if by some miracle we stay and actually make it out of here? Someday we might look back on this and decide that Saving Private Ryan was the one decent thing we were able to pull out of this whole god-awful shitty mess. That's what I was thinking, sir. Like you said, Captain, we do that, we all earn the right to go home. Bruh. Captain also said, we're not here to do the decent thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of, you know, mixed ideologies in here that some don't believe in the mission, even though they say they do, but it just kind of slips out. It just slips out of Captain Miller. He, the whole time he's, he's to projecting to his men that he believes in this mission, that they're doing a good thing, right, but he, he, he slips out. It slips out of his mouth. Like when's the last time you felt good about anything? He doesn't feel good about this mission. So they, actually decide to stay and help and defend the bridge and uh, babysit private Ryan. 
the lead up to the battle, we have various battle preparations. We and the rest of the soldiers learn what a sticky bomb is to knock the tracks, <laughs> knock the tracks off a tank. Use a standard issue GI sock, cram it with as much comp B TNT as it can hold, rig up a simple fuse, and coat the whole thing in axle grease. That way, when you throw it, it should stick. Actually, British and German soldiers actually had issue sticky bombs. Uh, but they came with some drawbacks like sticking to your trousers and you couldn't get them off. Oh, I did not know that. So this whole thing later on when we see soldiers exploding, running toward a tank with one, that's sort of uh, this whole thing. We get funny conversations. Uh, home translates an old Edith Piaf song. Riven tells a story of a busty woman back home. Uh, you know, when you're scared, think of these. And you'll be back home. <laughs> and Ryan tells the story. That actually about, works, you know. Yeah, boobs. They just save everything. <laughs> well, no, actually, it, it does. There is something about that that um, psychologically, there's it's it's thinking of breasts mm -hmm. and doing math. It will it will, and and one is much more fun than the other. One plus it, one it, equals <laughs> boobs. <laughs> It's anyway, suppo it's supposed to to relieve uh, inhibitions. Anyway, uh, Ryan, 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 Private Ryan tells a story about the last night all his brothers were together, uh, which Dad, uh, Matt Damon actually ad libbed, and it was so unfunny that Spielberg felt it fit and kept kept it in. And uh, Ryan asked to hear about Miller's wife and those rose bushes, and he says, "No, that one I'll save just for me." Dude, rewatching this, I couldn't help but think about the last time we see Captain America, Steve Rogers. He's mm -hmm. like, "You tell me about you, you know, tell me about it," and he's like, "No, I don't think I will." I don't think I will. Yeah, yeah. So, in these build up to the last battle, we also get uh, Mellish teaches up on what Fubar means in a mm -hmm. sort of he goes, he just kind of says it. He goes, "Fucked up beyond all recognition." And then he's like, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> he's, <laughs> him's kind of like, yeah. And then he looks at him and goes, Fubar. He's like, God dang it. <laughs> this sort of like, dang it. Anyway, after Private Ryan tells his story and asks to hear about Miller's wife, they hear a German tanks coming in the distance. And they look up to Jackson, who's in the bell tower. And he kind of gives them signals to, to let them know what's what's coming. And uh, Ryman kind of takes off as bait on the rabbit with his BAR rifle. And this last battle is, I, I think, seriously, one of the best action set pieces in all of film. I mean, beside, you can't, I mean, the beginning of the movie is just in a whole thing by itself, right? Right. But this last battle is just full of, heartbreak and anguish because we actually know these characters now in the beginning we don't they were just it's nameless soldiers dying left and right but now we actually know these characters and there are these heroic moments and actually some pretty ghastly blunders and the death of some of the characters you really came to love and the actual frustrations with some of the characters and the actions or the lack thereof from up mainly the uh, American soldiers here are the underdog for sure. And the Germans outnumbered them and outgunned them. 
and they kind of you kind of feel like the Americans have an advantage until that 20 mil rolls up and just starts picking them off of the tank and you just just see their heads like popping off and then you're I like thought it was oh, a 50 cal sh-. no it's a 20 mil it's like okay. a yeah caliber is smaller than that um uh, okay whatever those even bigger than that yeah. okay yeah because i mean it's shooting shooting things like huge bullets jackson is in a uh, bell tower just sniping people left and right and he can't quite get that 20 mil but he's still sniping people that are coming off of one of these little tanks and he's killed by a tank shelling the bell tower as he kind of goes out in a blaze of glory mellish here is one of the 30 cal machine gun positions and they're running out of ammo and their Germans kind of overrun them there. He died. This is one of the most visceral death scenes in any movie. And as a German soldier, you know, speaks to him in German says, give up. You don't stand a chance. Let's end this here. It will be easy for you much easier. You'll see it will be over quickly. And these words are spoken in German and not translated so um, um, this is a rough translation from somebody online but up um, not coming up to save him is one of the, the most irksome moments in this movie yeah i mean this is this one's hard it's hard to watch and it's one of those things that makes this film hard to rewatch and upham's cowardice it hasn't changed and we kind of expected a growth in the character and his growth comes more intellectually it doesn't come with more bravery that he doesn't change in that regard and it's frustrating and we ex- we we expect it we hope it we we expect that he's going to come in and change at the last minute and the fact of the matter is is that some people don't and this it's like it just reminds me of you know what makes one life more valuable than another and this whole mission has been uh, to save one life and he's been he hasn't really expressed any doubts about the mission in and of itself and he won't go in and save the one life he can save <clears throat> Who's he's actually built a rapport with with Mellish here. The, right. You know, he is. I mean, when he first tries to talk to Mellish, he says, like, watch out with those filthy little rat claws. <laughs> you know, but now he, they kind of have a heartfelt moment and he tells them what foobar means and, and he doesn't save him here. And, uh, yeah, he, he tends to choose his own life out of fear can't yeah. quite make that jump into that, that next level. He's mm-hmm. standing there on the stairwell. He has a weapon. He can go inside and he can stop what's happening. But the fear of the unknown, possible death, he quite couldn't make it happen. And cowers on the stairwell as the German soldier passes him by, hoping and praying that he doesn't get hurt in the process. And of he course, even- he wasn't. He even holds his hand up like off of the off of the trigger, like I'm not gonna kill you, you know, and he's crying. So the German I think the German has some humanity here mm-hmm. and just kinda peeks around like is everything uh, like everything clear and he just kinda walks off. 
it, it, it sucks for me watching that scene every single time I watch it. I hate it because I end up having more respect for the German than I do for uh, Corporal Upham. And I think yeah. that's uh, purposeful of the mm-hmm. filmmakers who are saying like, this is not so simple as good and evil here. Yes. The German soldiers are humans too. Mm-hmm. You know, like I talked about this in our World War II draft, but that you keep, whether or not these Nazi soldiers bought into that ideology and hated everyone and, you know, were just killing for the sport of it because they hated everybody else and they believed in this cause, a lot of them just got spun up and doing their duty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's super purposeful that you, you feel that way and you don't like up them in this moment specifically. Uh, so the battle ensues, you know, they're kind of babysitting Ryan throughout the whole thing, but they run out of ammo and they begin to use mortar shells by hand, which apparently critics said was unrealistic, which in fact, Medal of Honor recipient Charles Kelly actually did this in a battle of it in Italy in 1943, which I thought was interesting. Nice. Um, but they begin to fall back to the Alamo, which they titled the built well, one building that's across the bridge so that they can bro- blow the bridge up in case they were overrun. The Germans cannot take this bridge, which is the entire kind of plan behind this whole battle. And Sergeant Horvath is shot by soldiers as he's trying to hold off a tank with a bazooka. Captain Miller is shot by a soldier. He, the soldier he let go earlier. Mm-hmm. I didn't. Well, he's I trying to blow up the that. bridge. Yeah, he's trying to blow up the bridge, and he's shot by the soldier he, the POW he freed at the uh, that satellite tower. Hmm. And this is this scene is epic. The last stand with the Colt forty five taking slow shots at a tank as it approaches, which it explodes as the planes fly overhead. Um, that is a great. Him, that is iconic. Yeah, Upham finally. I want to say gain some courage here, but maybe not. When he kills the man he they previously let go. He kills the same guy. And the guy apparently says, like, I know this man, something, something, uh, and he just shoots him and then lets everybody else go. Uh, but he sees him. He's hiding, and he sees that guy kill Captain Miller, someone who he looks up to. And Ryman tries to patch up Captain Miller as reinforcements arrive. He calls for a medic. As Miller dies, he tells Ryan, James, earn this, earn it. And the tremor in Captain Miller's hand finally ceases. And Riven gets the Caparzo letter here. Uh, man, this last battle, like I said, it's, it's very heart-wrenching. There's a lot of moments in here that really tear you up because you do have, you have come to know, know these characters and you care about them and, and even love them in some respects. And like you said, you, you're hate some of them as well. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think Ryben is one of the least likable of the, the original squad. Um, though somewhat relatable uh, in, in challenging the whole mission in general. But I think one of the things that this really brings together for the audience is you have just lost almost the entire 
cast of characters you've been following in order to save the life of this one Private Ryan whom you just met and you don't really have much affection for. Um, and so like really this is, it's in some ways it's really testing the audience and it brings it back to the theme is how much is one life worth? And it really challenges the audience to say, was Private Ryan's life worth the lives, uh, the lives of Captain Miller, of Mellish, of Caparzo, of Wade, and Jackson, and Jackson, and Horvath? You, what really was it? You get two, two of the uh, seven or eight are left. You get Ryben. Who's, whom you don't particularly like. I like him. I, I don't know, but whatever. But you, in the other one you get is Upon. Whom very few people like. Might identify you, with because you're a fish out of water, but right. you don't like him at this point because, he, you know, because of what he's not done. So the monologue letter as we exit this scene is from George C. Marshall to Mrs. Ryan. And we get the chord of transformation of the private Ryan, Matt Damon into the old man from the beginning. And we find out that we are seeing what, I guess what Ryan perceived happened. And he says, he's standing at Captain Miller's cross. He says, my family is with me today. They wanted to come with me. To be honest with you, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. And I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that, at least in your eyes, I've earned what you all have done for me. And he looks at his wife and he says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And she's like, what? <laughs> I was Thanks for breaking that up. I'm about to like, I'm, I'm starting to tear up with that. You know, with, with she's his. just so like out of it. Like, like, what? Yes, you're a good man. And then walks off just like, I'm like, what? <laughs> well, that's out of place for me. <laughs> and we zoom in on the white cross that says Captain John H. Miller. And the film closes out the same way it opens on that flag, the American flag. And I feel like this is sort of a definitely an American perspective of World War II, but it also kind of shares what it means to be an American and uh, yeah, powerful film in a lot of ways. Yeah, and the feelings of course you get from that old man at the end of the film are a lot different than what you thought at the beginning of the film. You see him approaching those crosses and looking at, and then of course you flash to the war and uh, you think it's all about the you know the horrors of gunfire and death and whatnot but it's also about the idea of how i live my life um we don't know much about his actual life once he left the war but um when he asks his wife am i a good man have i lived a good life you know who am i as a person as a human being am i worth it and uh, he's he's struggling with the ideas that all these men died for him and sacrificed themselves so he could get home. You know, was it worth it? Am I worth it? And that's something a lot of servicemen struggle with, uh, especially after leaving long conflicts, you know, seeing your friends and whatnot die in front of you. 
Um, it's, it's something that to struggle with for the rest of your life. And that's a powerful moment. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm a, before we share our final thoughts, I'm going to hit you with some film facts. I've kind of peppered them throughout, but I'm going to hit you in some more. Uh, this film lost the Best mm-hmm. Picture Oscar controversially mm-hmm. to Shakespeare in Love. Boo. Boo. Yeah, we don't. That's not an indictment of Shakespeare in Love, but it's a. I've heard it's, it's a great film, but uh, it's a, it's a this has been named one of the greatest Oscar controversy in history of the award show. As uh, many people have attributed the latter's win to its producer, Harvey Weinstein, who Ugh. incessantly lobbied for his movie, Shakespeare in Love, with the Academy of Voters uh, while attacking this film for its historical inaccuracies. Hey, Harvey Weinstein, guess what? We're in a rated R podcast. I can say, fuck you. Thank you. All right. So this movie is also inspired by the true story of the Neelan brothers. If you, we're not going to go into all that history, but look it up. But it seems like I've peppered the rest of my film facts (laughs) throughout the entire (laughs) podcast. So that's it. But we could talk about the legacy of this film. It, definitely still holds up and after this spielberg and hanks produced band of brothers and then subsequently the pacific for hbo to outstanding miniseries that really just you know in themselves blow can just blow you away every episode and like you said josh that, that that's one that they introduce you to the soldiers one by one Get, you get to know them before they parachute into hell. Unlike this film where you're just thrown into it and introduced to them on the fly. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, let's hear you guys' final thoughts on Saving Private Ryan. Josh, you want to go ahead? It's just an extremely emotional, um, emotionally draining experience for me. Uh, I was telling Jamie when I came over this evening that I hadn't seen this movie in probably six years, and I've only seen the movie a handful of times throughout my life. And I was there during opening week. Um, I saw it when it first came out, and um, I was about two years removed from graduating boot camp, and our guest speaker, uh, a general, gave this speech to the audience. He said, I'm going to give you an image of two Marines. Uh, one image, of course, is the Marine that you see today standing on this parade deck. They're, they're wearing their, their uniform. Um, their boots are shined. Their, their shoes are glossed. Their uniforms are set up to a T. Everything's done correctly. They're here for show. They're here to show you who they will be, who they can be. Um, but then he switched to another story of a bunch of Marines at the bottom of a ship about to embark upon a mission, gunfires coming downrange and they're facing near death once they leave that ship. And the images and the feelings that he gave that day sent shivers down my spine as I stood there on the parade deck. And uh, those first five minutes of that gunfire on that beach brought every single one of those emotions back. And I feel it every single time I watch it. And uh, the idea, you know, I'm 43 years old and I'm starting to feel those ideas of what that old man is thinking about his life, what he's meant to other people. You know, has he done the right things? Has he done good in this life for his wife, for his children, for his grandchildren? 
So I can start to relate to that idea now too. So that's what I took away from it the last time I watched it was I started thinking about my own life after the credits roll. You know, in my 43 years, what have I really done in this life? And, you know, what else could I do? You know, have I done enough in this life? Has it been worth it? You know, that one human life, that one person, you know, have I been worth it yet? Um, have I done enough? And uh, it's just an emotional roller coaster. I'm not following that. Yeah, dude, I think, I think that sums it up. Uh, and that just what is one life worth? That's yeah, it. I, I do want to cover this movie. Spielberg changes the landscape of World War II movies in general. You know, a lot of what we got on the home front, a lot of the movies we got were very desensitized, very, uh, you know, n not so sort of war films that were kind of war as hell. World War II films, because Vietnam era films, the stuff that followed the Vietnam era, were very anti-war, speaking up about this war that we should have never been in right but world war ii movie you know world war ii was a war that we were fighting for something we were fighting an evil we were fighting a super power that was trying to take over the world but no everybody that made movies about it were just kind of washing it clean and telling just to tell what happened just to tell a little bit of like historical things like longest day is just like this is how grand this whole thing was this is the scope of it all. This one dials it in and it tells you these guys' story. It's historical fiction, yes, but the beginning of this film changes war movies forever. And even the same year we get the Thin Red Line and it is very visceral experience, but it ain't this. No. And to me... You'll never see anything like this again. And you've never seen anything like this beforehand. So I just think, I mean, I think a lot about this movie, obviously, but man, incredible film and incredible performances from everybody. Uh, I think this is Spielberg at the top of his game. And uh, seriously, Jamie, do you have anything to say? The, I'll, I will just part with this question to our audience what is one life worth watch the film ask yourself the question and see if you can answer it i don't think that the film answers it's not preachy it doesn't answer the question for you but it poses it and it gives yeah. you a lot of different sides and it lets you make your own call what is one life worth? Yeah, man. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Uh, we hate to leave you on this sort of pondering note, but this movie definitely, <laughs> this movie definitely called for it. It's yeah. not some, it's not some happy ending. You know, a lot, the characters we love don't survive mostly. And we just want to, send a heartfelt uh, gratitude to all the soldiers that have served josh thank you to you and all of our veterans and thanks for joining us on this uh discussion thank you guys for having me today sweet
All right. Well, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff at Citizen Wings Pod. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Like and subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcast thingy things. And uh, <laughs> Jamie, sign us out, buddy. This has been the Cine Siblings Podcast. I'm James. I'm Ian. And I'm Josh. Thank you for listening, everybody. And until then, watch an old movie. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Cine Siblings Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cine Siblings Pod.